G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're going to be talking about Australian history. And not only the Australian history that we might have been taught at school, but something special today. As you know, the Bible is without rival as the most printed book in English and the most widely disseminated book in Australia. It's also the text most intricately bound up with the encounters, the European encounters with Indigenous Australians and their languages. It is also something that is really more of recent times. Uh, Scholars who have begun to assess the Bible's immense influence on Australian life and culture. So today we're going to talk about a new book exploring the complex and sometimes contested role of the Bible in Australia and the ways the Bible is being read and interpreted by Australians today. Historian Dr. Meredith Lake has written what is described as a revelatory history of the Bible in Australia. The book is called The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History, and Meredith Lake is joining us. Hello, Meredith. Welcome back to 2020. Good morning, Neil. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, Meredith, the book has been launched just this past week, and uh, you rushed me a copy of the book, and I received that on Friday, and I took it home with anticipation on the weekend. And uh, it's a long book, so I haven't read it cover to cover, but I've read a few key chapters in your book. And I must say, with a congratulations up front, you have written an absolute cracker. This is just a beautiful, easy to read, wonderfully written uh, idea that is presented here about Australia and the Bible in part of our cultural history. So let me say my congratulations right up front. Oh, thanks, Neil. That's that's really kind. It's taken it's a, it's a work of three or four years, um, and I guess similarly to to you, I was just hooked by so many of the stories that I came across in researching it. Just so many things that I hadn't learned at school, and that I've only come to find out about as an adult and as a historian. And just I was just kind of absorbed. Really, I think there's a lot of a lot of really interesting things to think about and great stories to tell. Well, the way you have interwoven the stories is masterful, let me say, just fabulous. And I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the book. And I'll be encouraging listeners uh, through this hour to get your hands on this one. You will love the read. It is called The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History. And if you're wondering whether this is sort of all old hat, old fashioned, outdated, uh, let me ask you and uh, we'll come to something that has become quite a significant opening for your book and other Others have been commenting on it too uh, when we talk about this, uh, Meredith. But you've you opened the book with a description of Kobe Abbotton from the Bra Boys Surfer Tribe in Sydney, emerging from the surf, and from shoulder to shoulder he has a tattoo which says "My Brother's Keeper." Tell us some more about why that story opens your book and the significance of the understanding of what "My Brother's Keeper" is all about. I started with Kobe Abbotton because that 
phrase, my brother's keeper, many of your listeners I think will know, comes from the beginning of Genesis in chapter 4 where um, Cain has murdered his brother Abel and um, because he, he, he's jealous, basically, uh, of the way God treats Abel's sacrifice compared to his own. And so he kills his brother and then God confronts him. You know, where is your brother? And instead of, you know, confessing his guilt, he kind of talks back to God and says, look, am I my brother's keeper? To kind of try and wash his hands of this terrible crime. And it's a kind of, it's a phrase Cain uses in the biblical text to distance himself from any responsibility for his brother um, that he's just murdered. But for the bra boys, there is this kind of very hyper-masculine, boyky surfer tribe from Maru brother, you know, there's been movies made about them and they're kind of this iconic surfer tribe from Sydney. But they have this as their slogan, my brother's keeper. And for them, though, it means I am I am my brother's keeper. It's a, it's a phrase they used to say, no, we stick together. Our bonds are tighter even than family and we will stick together through thick or thin, for and against the police, like it's a kind of a statement of, togetherness of brotherhood, the opposite to the way Cain uses it in the biblical text. And for me, that was just, it's fascinating because it's the Bible cropping up in a place where you least expect it, like among, you know, blokey surfers at a Sydney beach, not in the church, but out there on, on the sand. And also that its meaning has been kind of taken out of its biblical context and put to a different use altogether. And for me, that signaled some of the issues and the interest about thinking about the Bible in Australian culture today, often it, it kind of floats around in these kind of fragments, these kind of phrases like my brother's keeper that are read in ways quite different to what a traditionally Christian or biblical reading of them might be. They're used for different purposes. And that kind of flipping the meaning upside down and doing something new with it, I think um, the separate to theology uh, is quite, quite common actually in Australia today. The Bible's not just something of interest to the churches and to the members, but it just floats around in these fragments in our wider culture. You know, this is something that is so special about your book. When you're saying, even in relation to a tattoo, uh, shoulder to shoulder, my brother's keeper, you know, it's out of context. Uh, there's probably no intention there to be related back to the Bible. Uh, but there's so many instances here that demonstrates the permeation, uh, the the way that the Bible has infiltrated uh, you know and I don't want to make it sound like it's uh, you know some sort of a spy thing but uh, yeah, but there's this permeation into our culture isn't it mm. and I mean the image of the tattoo works for me too because the idea of it being under the skin um, I think really I'm in a toy around with that in the book but some people regret their tattoos right um, you know there's all these businesses advertising you know tattoo removal but m- mostly we carry our tattoos if we have them through through life, they, they might fade, they might get blurry at the end, edges, but they're things that stick with us, even if, you know, the moment that we got them changes in the way we think about it. And that, for me, is a metaphor of the way the Bible shapes Australia really works. But there are obviously people now who, who are quite negative about the Bible and its influence and who would rather it get removed like a, like a bad tattoo. Um, but that's, it's quite hard to actually do that. Once it's under the skin, it, it might change, but it kind of sticks there a bit. And I think that's where we're up to as a culture at the moment. We've got this history where the Bible's been very important, very formative in lots of ways. Um, but there's a, quite a debate now, as you know, about what to do with that history and what to do 
in shaping society moving forward from here. So that, I love the tattoo idea because for me it summed up that kind of question. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Historian Meredith Lake is our guest and we're talking about her new book called The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History. Meredith, let's not go too much into history for a few moments because I find that in this generation people are talking about the here and now and you'll have noticed this too, that Sometimes we can get disconnected from the history and we wonder why we do things that we do now, but they are connected historically to the way that we've been shaped as a culture. But if we're talking about the 21st century, you began to share about the way we in the 21st century treat the Bible and uh, taking things out of context. We recognize it's there, but we don't actually see the importance so much. As you reflect on our generations today, what are your thoughts? Well, I think one of the interesting things that's happened in the last couple of generations is that what you might call Bible literacy, the the familiarity that an ordinary Australian might have with the main stories of the Bible, that Bible literacy has actually dropped off very dramatically since about the 1960s. People have, I mean, people have stopped reading books uh, in the same way overall. People watch much more TV now or have other forms of leisure compared to reading. Um, and people have, there's much fewer people going to church these days, so hearing the Bible through the songs and the sermon and the readings and the liturgy of a church service, and all those kinds of changes have meant that it's a smaller and smaller p- proportion of the Australian community that actually has a detailed knowledge of what the Bible has inside its covers. Um, there are people who might study it for literature or other kinds of scholarship who still know and people obviously who go to church but the ordinary person on the street might not have any particular working knowledge or might never have read one of the Gospels for example and I think part of what that means is um, when the Bible does crop up in public conversation or a politician uses it to make a point um, or something like an artist might use it um, it, it doesn't people don't always know what to do with that and so it very easily becomes um, um, controversial, I guess. Um, it's hard to know, was that a, a Christian way of using the Bible or not a Christian way of using the Bible? Not many people anymore have the ability to tell the differences um, or to make arguments along those lines. And so there's kind of a... I think that's one of the big issues facing our society now is this decline in biblical literacy um, that means it's not everybody has the skills to participate in a conversation about what the Bible might have to offer society anymore. In fact, you describe what you're talking about there as something of a turning point. And uh, while I haven't read your chapter yet, I'm feeling a sense of anticipation to get into (laughs) your chapter on secular Australia and the idea of reimagining Australia and people are wanting to move forward. But without those foundations that have shaped us the way we are, Uh, the outlook for moving forward could look very different to the sort of society we've become accustomed to. Well, I think think there are major social and cultural changes in process, although I suspect, too, that people of any generation feel like the world around them is changing. um, This isn't the first generation to think that, you know, the world's taking on a new direction that might cause some anxiety. Um, I think... um, Part of of the story in Australia is that the the Bible for so long was wrapped up with an idea of Englishness, 
that it was part of the kind of the settler culture that to be a white Australian was to be a Christian, to be basically English in your ethnicity. Um, and lots of my, my own family story follows this kind of pattern. Um, but what happens when Australia becomes um, less Christian in the way people identify their religious beliefs at the census, as we've seen? What happens when um, our cultural mix is no longer so dominant, and so Englishness is no longer so dominant, and there's lots, it becomes more of a melting pot? What happens to the Christian element? Um, and I think part of that, that's an exciting question in lots of ways. It's not something we necessarily need to be anxious or worried about. But what it means is that the Bible um, needs to, and is breaking out of a certain cultural mode. Um, it's not just an English book about Englishness anymore. It becomes a book that, you know, Indigenous Christians reinterpret, uh, a book that Chinese Christians take to heart and build flourishing churches with. It becomes a book that belongs to people from all parts of the world that migrate to Australia and bring their particular Christian traditions with them, whether they're Indian Marcoma or um, um, Greek Orthodox or um, Lebanese Christians. Or the, the, the Bible starts to, do you know what I mean? It starts to break out of that kind of old, white, Australian kind of model and crop up in lots of surprising places. And we, to take account of this kind of diversifying, I think, is part of the challenge for churches now that often still have the older structures in place. Um, but the kind of the Bible becoming a genuinely multicultural text is one of the, the exciting things I think that's happened over the last couple of generations in Australia, um, and it's, I guess it's another way of thinking about the cultural changes of our time, rather than seeing this multiculturalism as a kind of threat. You could, in another way to think about it, is that actually it's diversifying and strengthening and bolstering um, the richness of Australian society and including within the churches. So there's. There's kind of lots of things that have gone on, I think. Um, and the idea that Australia is becoming more secular is, I think it doesn't actually capture the full story of the, the changes that we're experiencing as a community at the moment. Interesting as you reflect on white Australia and uh, you do spend some time in your chapters dealing with uh, politics and how the Bible's been an influence there. Uh, I do recall uh, picking up one segment there when we talk about immigrants, uh, people coming with different skin colours. Uh, the idea that we had a white Australia policy, and that was, in some sense, to protect a Christianised environment that we had. Uh, but then I recall, uh, and I can't remember uh, which quote it was, but the idea that under our uh, white Australia policy from the 20th century, uh, under our policy, uh, Jesus wouldn't have been welcome in Australia. And yet we're talking about the Bible here. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that uh, sort of immigration and uh, white Australia and uh, and the way that... Uh, that people of different ethnicities also have brought the Bible with them here, and it's not just a white book. Well, I think that that history of the Bible arriving with British colonists, um, and as I said, that association of the Bible with Britishness, with whiteness, is the, it's been a huge part of its cultural history in Australia. I mean, the Bible's obviously not a British book. It's not written in English. It comes from the ancient... Um, the ancient world um, that's certainly not, like, you know, from, from for what we call the Middle East. Um, it's not a British book, except that the, it comes to Australia as a British book, if that makes sense. Uh, and it was used as a justification for, as you said, a, a white Australia policy. And that, that policy was the first piece of significant legislation 
that the new federation, the new Commonwealth of Australia passed. It was the most important thing, the number one item on the agenda for the new federal parliament. And the idea was that this was a country for the white man and as white people, that would be, you know, the best way to organise organize the nation. The problem with that, I mean, there's many problems with that. Part of the problem is that, that this was uh, an Indigenous... This is Indigenous country in the first place that was never conceded or um, given up. The other problem is there were there were lots of people who weren't British already in Australia at that time who were excluded and discriminated against, including Chinese Christians who, um, you know, the descendants of the gold rush Chinese communities who'd formed, you know, become Christians in Australia um, or in China and come out here as Christians, formed Chinese Christian churches with Chinese pastors reading the Bible in Chinese, um, but then facing um, deportation because of a white Australia policy. So actually, it was a policy that um, was quite ruinous to Chinese Christianity at that time. A similar story for the South Sea Islanders who worked in the sugarcane industry in Queensland, many of whom had converted to Christianity and had a really vibrant uh, Christian culture. Their communities were devastated by um, the exclusion of non-white people in Australia, so many of them were forcibly deported, um, and that, again, was really ruinous to the Christian communities of South Sea Islanders in Queensland. Um, and that whole... Like, it's not... The Bible didn't just belong to, to the whites, except that it could be used to justify the interests of white people in a way that actually harms other segments of the Christian church, not to mention people of colour, you know, whether they were Christians or not. So this, it is, it's one of those examples of where how people use the Bible, um, they might, might not actually be in the service of, you know, the, the growth of God's kingdom, you might say, um, or, or in tune with its deepest teachings about the unity of, of humanity as being, you know, Created in one as one blood, as it says in Acts twenty, uh, in Acts seventeen twenty six, that all people of earth are made of one blood. There's a common humanity that God has, you know, arranged the places for, and the times for them to live. And that principle, you know, is being trashed really by a white Australia policy. And it's really we're still grappling with the legacies of that today. Yes, and uh, it is very controversial, and listeners might have their own uh, input to make on that. Uh, our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Uh, you can also leave a comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. There's a uh, entry there uh, that you can respond to. Were these like growing pains, Meredith? Because uh, interestingly, as we talk about the permeation, the impact, uh, the influence of the Bible on Australian society and the shaping of a nation uh, that we might say uh, get, has given us all of these wonderful values that's given us freedom. But in some of these policy uh, setting and shaping, where we talk about things like the White Australia policy, that there are growing pains in all of that, uh, and there are tensions that are continuing to uh, bubble along, and yet there is a shaping towards what we have become, uh, which is now at risk. But uh, what are your thoughts on growing pains and the way that the Bible has been part of those, sometimes controversial? Hmm. I mean, what, what I found um, when I was researching this was that not, not everybody, of course, then as now was straightforwardly Christian in the way they, their spirituality played out. The, 
I mean, at the time of Federation, 96% of Australians would have said said at the census, yes, I'm a Christian of one variety or another. But that meant different things to different people. Most, you know, never more than half of Australians have gone to church. So there's a lot of people out there, you know, identifying as Christian but not participating in a Christian community. And even among churchgoers, there's obviously a lot of diversity, as there is now. So what did it mean to be Christian? Um, but So when it, when it came to arguing over, you know, what should we do about the poor? How should we treat people who are different to us? What should our education system, you know, include? All these big, big questions that any society has to deal with. Um, they didn't kind of just read the Bible and come up with a straightforward answer. They kind of drew on what they knew about Christian things because they were they had a, a familiarity with the Bible, interpreted in all kinds of different ways, and then within that argued about it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you'd have Christians on one side and Christians on the other, and then people who weren't Christian at all but still using the Bible to make their point. Um, so the question of um, what do you do about the poor, for example, you know, there were some people who were like, well, we should obviously start charities and be generous and give to the, give to the poor, and there's lots of examples in the Bible of that, um, that kind of practice. The Good Samaritan is a, a key parable. Um, other people would say, well, what we need to do is actually encourage poor people to save some money for a rainy day so that if things go bad, you know, they've got savings to fall back on. So we'll start a bank, a savings bank, and actually the bank that's now Westpac um, was started by evangelical Christians who thought that was a, a good solution to poverty. And then you get trade unionists like William Spence, who was a Presbyterian lay preacher, a Sunday school teacher, and went on to start um, several substantial unions in Australian history. He talked about, well, what you need to do is actually pay workers a proper wage, because as it says in Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 7, the labourer is worthy of his hire. We need to put this into practice. That's how you solve the problem of poverty. And so... There's all these different models, if you like, for what to do. It's not a simple one-size-fits-all answer. But all of them involve different applications of the Bible to that, that social challenge. So for me, that, that dynamic of what does the Bible mean or add up to it, how do you put it into practice, that's actually generated lots of different answers on lots of different issues, and that's where the dynamic's been. It's not that the Bible produces one, one policy, but that it somehow informs a whole suite of options that Australians have then had to weigh up and vote on and try out, if you like. I loved what you said when you said they drew on what they knew about Christian things, because we all might have our own personal idea of what it is to be a Christian, and some more mature in that idea of following Christ than others, and others just influenced by the things that they have been influenced by as they've grown up through their years. But this idea, they drew on what they knew about Christian things, really seems to indicate that in those early years, people were very influenced by the Bible because that was their lens for how they thought about, as you say, paying fair wages, uh, the way we do our education systems, how we treat the poor. Uh, This idea of a lens in doing those things the way we've done, uh, that might not be there for the future if if our capacity to to draw on what we know about Christian things diminishes. Uh, What are your thoughts, I mean, for now and, and reflecting on those things that were? Well, I think that to have... To have a good, I think the issues facing Australian society at the moment are enormous. Um, 
it's, it's not obvious how to build the good society at all. Um, and and things, whether it's a question like uh, immigration, a question like um, climate change and how to be live sustainably so we have a, a healthy earth to pass on to our children and grandchildren, or whether it's a question like um, around the bioethics and um, questions like euthanasia or um, the treatment of refugees or like the gap between rich and poor, um, all these issues, they're huge, they're huge. And I think, I mean, the Bible is no longer kind of the, the standard reference text because Australians don't adhere to Christianity to anything like the same extent that they used to. So I think, I think my view is that the Bible, we can't expect the Bible to be normative for people to kind of, for whatever the Bible it says, for that to be put into practice in a straightforward way because there are, there are too many people who aren't Christians and for whom it doesn't have any particular authority. But in order to, at the same time, um, the Bible is the, the centre, if you like, or the bedrock of a very long and rich and diverse tradition of thought and reflection, including on ethical issues. Um, there's, you know, there's, for 3,000 years since the first parts of what we call the Old Testament were written, you know, it's generated a lot of thought about what does it mean to live a good, you know, to live well as a human community in this world of ours. And we, we face such big issues that even for people who aren't Christians, there'd be a kind of, um, it'd be a real shame, I think, to, for us as a community to shut ourselves off from a tradition that deep and rich. Um, if we think we can solve the problems of our time without listening well to, to a Christian tradition, um, we might need to think again. It's not the only tradition I would say we need to listen to now because we do live in a plural society, a multi-religious community, and there are obviously secular traditions of thought that have things to contribute to. But the Bible and Christianity have historically been the one that's had the most influence. Um, so whether we want to keep that into the future, as many of your listeners probably do, or whether a more secular person would argue that we want to discard that, we still need to listen well to the past and understand how we got to where we are and then make an informed, an informed set of decisions, um, one that's not just driven by you know, knee-jerk reactions to something we think we might not like, but that's actually taken the time to listen and learn and distill whatever wisdom we can that might still work for society today. Okay. Uh, Meredith, we've got to cut in here because we're about to go to news. Uh, Meredith Lake's our guest. Meredith, when we talk about the Bible and the way that has permeated into Australian culture, this was very intentional, wasn't it? Because uh, if we go right back to the First Fleet... Uh, we've got Richard Johnson, the first chaplain on the First Fleet, uh, and he came prepared to make sure that the Bible became the book that did permeate the culture of those initial co uh, colonial days. What are your reflections on, on Richard Johnson and on his intentionality with bringing the Bible into Australia? I mean, I think, I think Richard Johnson is one of... I mean, I just love him. I think he's one of... Uh, the great characters of Australian history. He, um, I don't know if your listeners will know this story about him. He was probably he was tapped on the shoulder to be offered the job of chaplain to New South Wales, possibly by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, possibly by William Wilberforce, the anti-slavery campaigner. But he moved in those kind of circles, and they kind of his elders, if you like, uh, said to him, well, "Why don't you go? This is a good job for a young bloke like you." 
and he didn't want to go. Um, he thought he, he didn't have the spirit of a missionary, and the idea of sailing halfway around the world to New South Wales just terrified him. But he spent several days kind of praying about it, fasting. He says he wept over the idea, uh, eventually decided that he thought, look, he could trust God to go with him wherever he went to do God's work. And so hard as it was, he would accept this job of being chaplain to the first convict fleet. Um, and he did come prepared. He came with a cargo of 100 Bibles, uh, several copies of the New, more copies of the New Testament by itself, copies of the Psalms and lots of books um, like Dissuasives Against Stealing and pamphlets on why you shouldn't be a liar and things like that, which he obviously meant to give out to the convicts. Um, but when he got here, um, the first Sunday that everybody, all the Europeans had kind of disembarked from the ships, he held a, a church service under a tree, one of the officers told us, and he chose a verse from Psalm 116. Um, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me. And he, it's a remarkable choice. What would you preach on if you, you know, for the first time on, you know, the opposite side of the world to where you're from? And he chose this verse, I think, out of a sense of relief that they'd survived the voyage um, with relatively few uh, deaths along the way. It was a remarkable achievement in that sense. Um, and the sense of the convicts had been given a second chance. Most of them were here because they'd been sentenced to death and then that sentence had been reprieved to just transportation. So in a sense, a very real sense, they had a second chance at life. And that idea of, well, what, what shall I do to thank the Lord for his generosity? That was the sentiment Johnson went for. And he arrived, I think, out of all the people, all the Europeans on that fleet, he thought, you know, he had the highest view of the Bible. For him, it was God's word. It was the truth about uh, salvation it was the truth about humanity, and it laid out the way to eternal life. We have one of his sermons uh, that he had printed, and it talks about um, the, the tenor of the whole Bible, he says, um, was that people have sinned, they are under God's condemnation, but Christ is a perfect mediator. He shows both the justice and the mercy of God and brings peace to sinners by his death on the cross. That, for Johnson, that's what the Bible was about. And he quoted verses like John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Verses from Romans 4, that he who believes is not condemned. And he said, my friends, search the scriptures. You will find this is the tenor of the whole Bible. This is what it's about. And that was Johnson's conviction. And he, he was almost alone, him and his wife Mary, a few of the officers, Ralph Clark, but not many people with him on that voyage believed that about the scriptures. Um, he actually was greatly discouraged. Some of the convicts, he'd give out these Bibles that he had and he'd find that they'd been traded for a glass of alcohol or sold so that someone could buy a loaf of bread or the pages had been uh, torn out and used in the bathroom. Things like he was, you know, people, like especially convicts, just weren't, they didn't believe him <laughs> when, when, when he said that it was God's true word to the world. And I think that's interesting in itself. There was this, conversionist, evangelical view of the Bible as God's Word, and from the outset, people with very different ideas. Um, the Bible's never been straightforwardly accepted by, by everybody. It's always been contested. There have always been people who've said, no thanks, or people who've used it in, in ways that aren't, <laughs> aren't what the chaplain might expect. 
And I think that's there from, from the very beginning of the story of the Bible in Australia. I'm with you. I think he's underrated and uh, needs to be elevated to one of our national heroes, uh, Richard Johnson, the first chaplain that came on the first fleet. Uh, let me ask you some more about Richard Johnson because uh, he was uh, third in charge and uh, in those days uh, Governor Philip uh, saw... Uh, Richard Johnson as part of law and order. So when we talk about church and state and uh, law and those sorts of things, uh, the interesting uh, aspect here is that Richard Johnson had a responsibility to teach morality to the convicts because it was a chaotic society uh, that began to form there after the First Fleet landings in Sydney Cove, not only with uh, uh, relationships with the Indigenous Australians, uh, but the, the, the chaotic society around uh, convicts. And so Richard Johnson, really armed with the Bible, uh, this became the way that law and order began to uh, permeate into the early colonies. Uh, your reflections on that style of understanding of the power mm. of the Bible uh, when we talk about that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, Johnson was the Anglican chaplain, which meant he was uh, yeah, a part of the Church of England. And at that time, the Church and the Crown were still quite straightforwardly united in, in British history. And that kind of came to Australia, that whole structure. I think Johnson was less interested in law and order than in the salvation of souls. I think he, deep down, wanted people to repent and be saved, and that that, that was why he preached to people. That's why he pursued pastoral care so diligently. He was that kind of old-style evangelical. But you're right about Philip. Philip, the governor, was he was a baptised Anglican. Uh, he wasn't, you know, um, a doctrinaire atheist or anything like that, but he... He wasn't the kind of vital believer that Johnson was. He thought that part of having an orderly society meant the proper observance of religion. And his instructions for setting up the colony included that, to inculcate and establish the proper observance of religion, which meant Church of England Christianity at that time. And he was the one uh, who told Johnson to begin with more moral subjects, whereas I think Johnson wanted to talk about, you know, the state of the soul and you know, your eternal future. But Philip wanted him to talk about moral things like, you know, don't steal, do your work, get married, you know, don't be lazy, all those kinds of things. And Philip himself, when the convicts disembarked, lectured them from a verse in Thessalonians that says, you know, he who will not, who does not work will not eat. That's a verse in Thessalonians. And he quotes it to kind of tell the, the convicts to follow instructions. So I think it was the kind of the state, the government, if you like, that used the Bible as a, I guess it's a, a way of establishing social order that suited its goals. And then the interesting thing to me is that the convicts, who um, some of whom were quite receptive to Johnson's message, I might add, some of whom uh, were less receptive to the government's imposition, but they too um, knew the Bible really well and had their own uses for it. They weren't straightforwardly Christian often, but the Bible was the main text that circulated at that time, and even people who weren't very literate might have been familiar with one of the kind of pictorial Bibles that were being circulated among the working classes. And actually, pictorial Bibles um, were the, the tattooist's handbook in the late 18th century. So lots of the convicts who came to Australia had tattoos, and many of those tattoos were actually biblical. They might have a cross, a crucifix with Jesus on it. They might have been an Adam and Eve um, Garden of Eden scene. There were people with actual verses. There was one 14-year-old convict, Joseph Gummett, 
who came out with um, Fool's Mock at Sin, um, which is a, a biblical verse tattooed on his arm. And just like it, it was, it cropped up in all kinds of ways, including among the convicts who read it uh, and knew quite a lot about it, surprisingly enough. Okay, there's so many things we can talk about here and we might only be able to touch on some things briefly but today as we're talking about your new book, Meredith let me just ask you to perhaps touch on uh, we'll go through a few topics fairly quickly Uh, Federation in in Australia, uh, 1901 and the Bible's influence on uh, Australia as a, a, you know, coming of age of a nation, uh, federation, our constitution. What are your thoughts about the Bible's influence there? Well, again, the Bible is the touchstone, if you like, for the way people think about um, their common life together. Uh, so when, when they actually inaugurate um, the Commonwealth of Australia, the ceremony they have where um, the future King George V is present to open the first parliament, um, they sing... Uh, what's commonly known as the Old Hundred, which is based on based on a psalm. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice, serve him with fear, his praise foretell, come ye before him and rejoice. Like that, that is what was sung at the opening of the first Commonwealth Parliament. They prayed the Lord's Prayer all together. It finished with the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You know, um, it was saturated, if you like, in... In, in the Bible and in kind of um, the language and the songs that have come out of that. Um, and I think that, that, that sentiment that by coming together, the colonies coming together, they were uniting to, to do something altruistic, to do something um, that was idealistic, to, to create a better society, a more brotherly kind of community. That was a really strong impulse that was expressed in kind of fairly... Uh, Christian and biblical ways. I mean, even Edmund Barton, who um, was very famously very secular, he wasn't a Christian, um, he he thought that God wanted Australia to be a federation, like, and he used that language. Um, and the idea that, that there should be an acknowledgement of God in the Constitution, um, the people who were writing the Constitution, those conventions, weren't going to put that in. Uh, but there was an upswell of popular opinion that no, no, this there's a there's a spirit that moves and it's pushing us to unity, and we want to acknowledge that. And huge petitions um, organised by churches is kind of what convinced the framers of the constitution to honour that and to express that in in the constitution. We still have that that phrase, you know, um, humbly acknowledging Almighty God. Uh, in the, the preamble there. And so this idea um, that it was a religious undertaking, that, that this would make a kind of more Christ-like nation, that that's what federation would achieve, um, is one of the main kind of ideas that's circulating at this time. And the churches were very involved in promoting it and preaching it um, in those kinds of terms um, because they thought it was a way of kind of enacting, if you like, a more Christian kind of society. Um, not everybody who used that language was straightforwardly Christian. Alfred Deacon, um, who later became Prime Minister, he was not—he was not um, a straightforward Christian. But he—he he loved the Bible as as, a, as an extraordinary book um, that spoke to the spirit, um, and he used this kind of language, even though he wouldn't have talked in terms of like Richard Johnson did, in terms of repentance and sin and salvation through Jesus Christ. 
Um, but, but that idea that there was a divine hand shaping the course of the nation was very, very potent at the time of Federation and probably um, is part of what enabled uh, Federation to occur. So the Bible was used uh, in the lead-up to Federation, really to unite Australians around coming together, this idea of unity. So very much a part of uh, the uh, formation of that unified uh, nation under Federation. And when you talk about the Constitution, the preamble, uh, and you know, humbly acknowledging God in the preamble, uh, you actually uh, you talk to uh, the issue of not being too religious in the Constitution as a way of maintaining uh, a, a Christian religiosity. Now, that's an interesting thing because some people might say, well, if if the intention was to keep uh, a Christian religion to the fore, you might make sure there was much more in the Constitution. But uh, you're suggesting the history shows that uh, that less Christian content in the Constitution actually creates the opportunity for more Christianity. Am I am I reflecting what you've written right? Well, I'm not sure I'd put it quite like that, but I think one of the key things that's going on in this time is that there's a lot of Catholic-Protestant rivalry, or flat-out sectarianism, really. Um, it's not as potent in Australia as it used to be. But at that time, it wasn't so much Christian versus secular, but more competing versions of Christianity against one another, if you like. That was the, the source of disunity in many ways. There were, Of course, there were people who weren't Christians and secular advocates as well, but the vast majority of people signed up to one form of Christianity or another. And that was where the conflict was, if you like. And that was the kind of conflict that the framers of the Constitution, as well as the framers of the education system, wanted to keep at bay. And so what they did was um, they kind of ran with an idea of common Christianity. What's, what are the bits of, the, of Christianity that more or less everybody can agree on um, and, and just play to that rather than ramp up doctrines of sin and salvation and that are understood with different shades across the spectrum of Christian denominations. Um, so I, I would say that the dynamic wasn't a secular versus Christian one, but uh, um, within the vast arc of Christian thought, what the details might be. And so of course... Like, take, take the, do you swear an oath of allegiance or do you make a religious oath when you enter Parliament? Um, many of the, the first members of Parliament said, you know, humbly relying on Almighty God, you know, um, to take their oath of office, um, but and you know, and saying, you know, so help me God at the end of their oath. But the other option to uh, make us what we would think of as a secular affirmation is also actually got religious roots to honour a different tradition of Christian thought. So people who say, well, the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five, there Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no, so I'm not going to swear an oath. I'm just going to make a statement to say that I'll, you know, I'm going to be, I'll honour the king as a, as a member of parliament. And that, that reading of the Sermon on the Mount was really important to Quakers and other dissenters, and that's the reason that there's a provision for an affirmation rather than an oath in our parliamentary procedures. It's not so that people can express, you know, a non-religious or secular viewpoint. It was originally there to give space to Christians who couldn't swear an oath on, on, in, in good conscience because of the way they understood the Sermon on the Mount. So you've kind of got the church and state Christians on one side and the dissenters on the other, and we get these provisions that mean now 
we've got a, um, a system that allows all kinds of views, including the expression of unbelief, um, but it, it relies on a certain application of the Bible that now makes space for secularism, if that makes sense. So uh, I think there's, there's an openness and a, and a generosity in some of those provisions that comes precisely from the biblical, the application of the Bible in certain ways. You describe it in such a way that really describes just how thoughtful uh, those who framed our Constitution were. And as you say, secularism wasn't the sort of secularism we have today. Uh, the debate wasn't secular versus Christian. It was Christian versus Christian when it comes to the Catholics and the Protestants. And the way that the Constitution frames uh, those things, and as you say, some of the ways that that is outworked, actually allows for the Christian freedom. And, and so we might even uh, draw some uh, some attention to a freedom of speech uh, ideal that is actually under contention right now. Uh, and I'm going to draw you into a political uh, uh, fight here, but your thoughts on, on, on religious freedom and and the Constitution and what it has set up for religious freedom in Australia. And, of course, that's under review right now, and uh, there'll be some recommendations next month. Uh, do you have a thought or two on that, Meredith? Well, I'm not a, a constitutional expert or anything like that, but my reading of history in Australia is, uh, I think you're right that there is a particular concern and anxiety at the moment about these issues of religious freedom. But they often, in my view, often go along with an idea that there was a somehow straightforward Christian path that is being lost in Australia today. Whereas, um, I think it's, it's a bit more complex than that. The Bible arrived um, and the churches arrived at a time when they were already contested and debated and under pressure from people with different views. As I talked about Richard Johnson, there was the government that had its agenda, there were the convicts that had theirs, the officers of the First Fleet were often men of the Enlightenment and they had their views, and you know Johnson standing there saying this is God's word of salvation to all, that was just one view among many right at the outset. The Bible has always been contested and debated and refuted and rejected, as well as embraced and, and upheld in Australia. That, this story of debate is actually not unique to our time now. It's been ongoing for centuries, actually. Um, and I think for me, that means that there, there might be less reason to be anxious than we sometimes feel, that, that it's actually normal. It's a normal thing in Australian culture for people to, to bag out the Bible. I mean, the, word, the phrase Bible basher um, is actually an Australian invention, and it's 120 years old now. Um, that, that word. So it's not like it's new for um, the Bible and people who take it to be God's word to be critiqued in, in, our, in our community. And I think actually learning to live with debate and contest uh, is, is something that um, would be valuable um, and that, that anxiety um, might not always be the most productive, the most productive response. But I, I don't want to, I don't know what this, how this will play out in the details of any any um, high level review of religious freedom, um, and when we think... talk in the context of history and the way that history is growing, it's not as though uh, you've got uh, a halt to history. It, it continues, and of course, uh, the way the shaping and the growth of the spirituality in Australia based on the Bible will continue, and uh, and so that's something to look forward to into the twenty first century as uh, as as history continues on. As you say, I mean... tensions and arguments are all important. I mean, there's, there's a verse in Isaiah 55 that says, 
so also will be the word that I speak, says the Lord. It will not fail to do what I plan for it. It will do everything I send it to do. Um, and, and Christians, there have always been people in Australia who've believed that verse and trusted, you know, that, that, that God would, would fulfill his word and do what his word was meant to do. Um, alongside people who've said, well, it's just like any other book and it doesn't have any power or authority, we can take it or leave it. Um, and I think for people, there are still, there are always going to be people who believe that word about what the Bible is and what it might do. And as long as there are Christians, I think um, there will be people who trust that God's work will do what it's going to do. Um, it's going to be difficult to stay. If that turns out to be right, not much is going to stand in the way of that. That's and right. So again, I think there's, there doesn't need to be an anxiety, but a, a, a maybe for a Christian reading my book, they might take away, I hope, an encouragement to just relax a little bit into um, God's faithfulness, if I can put it like that, that... Well, I think one generation. It's not up to us to save to save the you know to save the day. Um, if the Bible turns out, you know, if the Bible is God's word, it will have a power of its own. Um, we're called to 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 be faithful rather than to defend it at every 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 corner. Um, well, Meredith, and that li- living it is alongside people. You know, is just part of the deal. It is so refreshing uh, to have a read of your book, and I'm going to highly recommend this for listeners. Uh, to get a hold of Dr. Meredith Lake's book. It's called The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History, and uh, you will enjoy the reads. It is so delightfully written, uh, you won't want to put it down. It is a wonderful book. Now, getting a hold of it, Meredith, simply Googling uh, The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History, no doubt people will be able to find that, whether it's on Amazon or other booksellers. Uh, I mean, Turong Christian bookshops have it. Kurong, um, yes. Kurong has it in other Christian bookshops, but it, I hope it's not difficult to find. Uh, I don't think it will be difficult for people to find, and I'm sure it's going to be very popular. Uh, there is a website, too, that you have. No doubt there'll be links there, meredithlake.com, uh, and also newsouthbooks.com.au, and that, uh, no doubt, is your publisher, newsouthbooks.com.au. Right. Uh, there are lots of ways you can get it. Just remember the name if you're Googling The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History, and the author is Meredith Lake. Meredith, it is just a wonderful opportunity, as always, getting your thoughts and insights, and I want to thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.